Christ have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all that they are all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. May he write it on our hearts this evening. Well, on January 26th of this year, uh, the Left Behind franchise put out their most recent movie in theaters. Uh, it's the movie called Left Behind Rise of the Antichrist. And it made over $3 million opening weekend in the box office. And what is this movie all about? Well, here's a brief synopsis that I found online. After millions of people vanish and the world falls into chaos, the only light is a charismatic leader who rises to become head of the UN. But does he bring hope for a better future or is it the end of the world? You know, the topic of the end times is a fascinating one for Christians, isn't it? You know, end time books are some of the best sellers out there on the shelves. And we love to talk about the end times. We love to debate about the end times and what's going to happen. And while the Bible does talk about the end times, the purpose is not to promote theological debate or speculation. But oftentimes the purpose of the writers is to help us to live, to help us to know how we are to live in these last days. You know, John here speaks about certain events that are going to characterize the last days. But he writes these things to the church to encourage them concerning who they are in Christ and how they are to live in light of the days that we're living in. And this is what we want to think about today. We see here that there is a great spiritual struggle that we are engaged in. But here at the end of John's teaching, he gives us this comfort something that God holds out to us in this struggle, which is the promise of eternal life. And so there's two main points that we're going to consider from 1 John 2. First, we'll see antichrists and apostasy. And then second, we'll see our anointing and abiding. And before we dig into those two main points, just a little bit of context here as we look at verse 18. Uh, There we see in the first half the time that we're living in. So a bit of an introductory point the time that we're living in. Notice what John says again, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. 
And there he uses that term of endearment as a good pastor, right? Reminding uh, the people of God that they are God's children. And he's reminding them of the time that they're living in, even as God's children. And he says it's the last hour. It's the only place where it's used here in the Bible, that specific phrase, last hour. The New Testament speaks in different places of the last days. And that phrase, the last days, is a reference in the New Testament to these times that we are living in between the ascension of Jesus into heaven when he first came and his second coming. In between the ascension of Jesus and his coming again is this time that we call the last days. And these days are spoken of here as well in this phrase. Um, Hebrews chapter 1 also uh, speaks about this. It says in verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. These are the days that we're living in, beloved, when the gospel is going out throughout this world And the spiritual kingdom of Jesus right now is being built all throughout this world as people are coming to faith and repentance in Christ. And this phrase here, last hour, is probably synonymous with that phrase, last days, but it might be a reference to the final part of the last days. You know, when you're watching a movie, there's a conclusion, but there's often, right, those last final scenes I think John might be saying here, we are nearing the end of the redemptive story. We're not only in the final chapters, but we're in the final pages of the final chapters. Soon, the Lord Jesus will come. What does this mean? Well, as New Testament Christians, here today even, we are to live with this sober and constant awareness of the days that we're living in. That this is to shape our mindset as we go about this world. I read of a man who had on his wall in his study a plaque that said two words, perhaps today. It was a reference to the truth that perhaps today Jesus will come back. It's a plaque that reminded him, reminds those who hear about this, of the awareness we are to have, that eager expectation that perhaps today the Lord Jesus will return. As we hear from Paul in Romans 13, Salvation, our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, this doesn't mean that we're to interpret, right, every news event under the sun as a sign that the end is near, right? You can't always connect Chinese spy balloons or derailed trains to certain events that you see about in the Bible, right? Some people will open their newspaper and open their Bible and try to, you know, match up the events. Uh, Even worse, some people try to predict the end of the world, Maybe you remember the name Harold Camping. Uh, He was a minister in California who came out of the Christian Reformed Church. And two times he falsely predicted the end of the world. Right. Jesus said in Matthew 24, many people are going to come in my name saying, I am the Christ or there he is. And they will lead many astray for false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And so we're to live, beloved, with this awareness that we're in these last days, according to Jesus. And there's going to be this struggle. There's going to be people who are trying to lead people astray from the Christ as revealed in the word of God. And this is what John now tells us in the main meat of our text. These two important things. He speaks of antichrist and apostasy. 
antichrist and apostasy. You see that in verse 18, 19, and 22. Now, when we hear that word antichrist, maybe there's various images that come up in our mind or maybe certain names come to mind. Maybe we associate antichrist with certain political leaders or false teachers. Interesting, in the 1646 version of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says that the Pope is the Antichrist. And that's not entirely wrong, but it's theologically more accurate to say that he is a Antichrist. And we'll see why in just a moment. And that's why in the 1789 version, it deleted that reference. But you see here, John, he uses this word Antichrist in two different senses. Verse 18, he speaks of the Antichrist who is to come, right? This human representative of Satan. But then he speaks of many Antichrists who have already come and who are leading God's people astray. That word Antichrist literally just means opposed to Christ or against Christ. Notice these people aren't anti-church. They're not anti-religion, but they're anti-Jesus. They're anti-Jesus in the sense that they don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, is the Messiah of God. There are many antichrists in John's day that are connected with the final antichrist who is yet to be revealed. And what do they all have in common? They lead people away from the gospel of grace. The spirit, you might say, beloved, of the antichrist is at work all throughout the scriptures. Genesis 3.15, the Lord predicted that there was going to be this ongoing struggle and battle between these two seeds. He says to uh, the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And immediately in Genesis chapter 4, you see Cain aligning himself with the seed of the serpent And he kills his brother Abel, who was of the seed of the woman. You see, in John's day, the Antichrist worked how? By deception. Just like the serpent in the Garden of Eden, leading Eve astray. In John's day, there were Antichrists who were leading God's people away from Christ. Beloved, we are reminded in the New Testament, in Ephesians 6, That we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. Today in the world, we see many agendas and ideologies that are opposed to Jesus and his teaching. Right. What is behind the dehumanization of the unborn or the dehumanization of certain people groups because of their social class or their ethnicity? What's behind redefinitions of marriage or sexuality? It is the spirit of people who are opposed to Christ. But John's main concern isn't just the people out there, but he's actually speaking of the spirit of the Antichrist that's at work inside the church. It's from within the church that the great Antichrist will come. And he says already there's many within who are spreading false teaching and leading God's people astray. There's already trouble in the New Testament churches that were planted by the apostles. You see, the most important question that we continue 
to need to answer faithfully. It's the question that Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Is he just a good religious teacher? Is he just one path to God among many diverse paths? Is he just a helpful spiritual guide that gives us a sense of purpose? Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, they all speak of Jesus. They all speak of grace. They all speak of forgiveness. They all speak of everlasting life. But they deny that Jesus is the Christ. They deny that Jesus and his finished work is sufficient to save us from our sins. They deny that Jesus of Nazareth, who came 2,000 years ago, is the Son of God incarnate. And therefore, according to the Scripture's assessment, they are antichrist. They are opposed to the Jesus of the Scriptures that is able to save your soul that is able to bring you to glory. According to John, they don't have the Father because they deny the Son. And so they don't enjoy fellowship with God. Again, who is Jesus is the most important question that we can answer as image bearers of God. St. Augustine soberly put it this way, each person must examine his own conscience as to see whether he is antichrist, if he is against him or for him. And here we see, beloved, the danger of apostasy, apostasy. Now, this is a word that refers to those who were for a time outwardly identified with the people of God, the covenant community, but they did not have true faith in Jesus. Right? It breaks our heart, doesn't it? When we see someone walk away, not just from the church that we're a part of, but from the church in general, we see them leave Jesus altogether. Jesus warned about this in John 15. He said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit is cut off and thrown away to be burned. Again, those are people who are outwardly identified with Jesus, part of his covenant community, even participating in the things of the church, but they lack true faith and personal trust in him. And this shows itself in a falling away from Jesus. And that's what happened in John's day, beloved. And notice why they fall away. John tells us two reasons. One, because they were not truly part of the group, meaning they did not share in the same spiritual faith of believers. That's what he means when he says that they were not truly of us. But, but he gives that as an encouragement to the church that those who were falling away weren't true spirit-filled Christians trusting in Jesus who somehow lost their salvation. No, he's saying, no, look, beloved, they were not truly of us. They weren't looking to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of their sins. No true believer who is filled with God's spirit, who looks to Jesus alone for their salvation, could ever be cast off by God. This is John 6, verse 40. Jesus himself said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But we see another purpose behind these people falling away. Not only were they not truly part of the group, but this is part of God's divine purpose. See, God's hand was at work even in this 
season of apostasy to reveal who were the false teachers and who were the false people of God who were leading others astray. Notice, John says that they went out that it might become manifest, or he uses the word in the SV, plain, that they are not of us. God allowed them to go out so that he could manifest before the church that these people were not truly part of his church. There's a sense of protection in that by God, a sense of clarity in this, that God doesn't want to allow these people to deceive his precious sheep any longer. And so, beloved, these last days are tough. They're marked by antichrist. They're marked by apostasy sometimes. Some people stray from the faith into worldliness. Some go into false teaching. Some just walk away into moral confusion. And all of us can be shaken as we hear this. We can wonder, Lord, what about me here today? My own heart still struggles with sins. Am I going to make it to the very end? Well, notice this wonderful encouragement that John gives to the church. He not only speaks of antichrist and apostasy, but he speaks of our anointing and abiding. Our anointing and our abiding, our second point. Notice verse 20, this remarkable contrast. But you, see that? But you have been anointed by the Holy One. How encouraging is that? This anointing is the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. And there are many antichrists, you see, in this world who you might say share in the spirit of the antichrist to come and his agenda. But there are also many spirit-filled Christians who belong to Jesus and who are united to him, anointed by the Spirit. That word anointed is a beautiful word that we heard from Isaiah not too long ago. That's why we sang Psalm 23, where David says, you anoint my head with oil. Kings and priests in the Old Testament were often anointed with oil as a visible sign that they were set apart for holy service for God. This anointing here speaks of how Christians share in the anointing of Christ himself. The Lord Jesus is the Messiah. Literally, the anointed one. He is God's final prophet. He is God's final priest. And he is God's final king. And now that Jesus has been ascended to the right hand of the Father, he has poured out upon his church the Holy Spirit to anoint his children. Just as the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus in his ministry, empowering him in his task to be our prophet, priest, and king, Now the Spirit comes upon every single child of God to empower them in their walk with God. Remember in the Old Testament how oil fueled the life of the candlesticks in the tabernacle constantly so the flame would never go out. That is what the Holy Spirit does for the Christian. The Spirit causes our faith to endure the light of day and to stand the dark of night. And this anointing, beloved, isn't just for a select few within the church. It's for every child of God. Children and adults who trust in Jesus. Women and men. Jew, Gentile, rich and poor. That each one might know the Lord and be filled with the Spirit. And that's the encouragement John is giving for us in these last days. 
that if you trust in Christ, you have been anointed just like Jesus. This is Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 32, where it asks, why are you called a Christian? The answer is because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him, a living sacrifice of thanks, and to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. This is all promised by the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, where God says, all will know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. And that's what John is saying here. Verse 27, believers are taught by the very spirit of God. His anointing, John says, his anointing teaches you all things. John is not saying we don't need any earthly teachers our pastors any longer. He's writing a letter to instruct the church. But he's emphasizing that the Spirit causes true Christians to sniff out false teaching and to hold on to Jesus as they hear the Good Shepherd's voice in the Word of God. John is reminding the church they don't need some secret knowledge from all these so-called enlightened people because they have the best teacher of all, the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus said, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Beloved, what does the anointing of Jesus teach us? Well, primarily God's anointing teaches us the saving power of the gospel. Verse 20, he says, you have all knowledge. And this all knowledge is not referring to a comprehensive understanding of math or biology or some other fancy you know, subject. That would be neat. But it's referring to Christology, you might say. Who Jesus is and what he came to do. Jesus said, he will glorify me. Again, the false teachers were distorting who Jesus was. And so John is reminding the readers that they know him because the Spirit of God is teaching them that Jesus is the Christ. They might hold on to him. The Spirit teaches us, beloved, that Jesus is no mere man, but is true man and true God who came down to take on our flesh that he might live the life that we never lived, die the death that we deserve, be raised again for our justification, ascending into heaven, and one day he will come again. And all who trust in Jesus are taught by God's Spirit and are identified by God as his chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, 1 Peter 2.9. And so in these last days, you see, there's this real spiritual struggle. There's many antichrists who seek to lead God's people astray, but there are also those who are anointed by the ascended King of Kings and Lord of Lords who declare his victory and shine as lights in this dark world. Oh, beloved, sometimes the battle, the struggle is real and we feel very fragile and weak. And we wonder, even today, 
You know, how's the church going to survive this? Maybe we wondered that during COVID times. Maybe we remember, wonder that when we see different things happening in different churches and splits, and we wonder, Lord, is your church going to make it through all of this confusion today, all of these temptations? Am I going to make it? You see, the Spirit here not only teaches us, but he helps us to abide in Jesus. We are to rely not on ourselves, not on our own wisdom or strength, but we are to rely on God, the Spirit, who helps us to abide. And how does he do that? Well, John says, it's when we allow the word of God that message that we have heard from the beginning, John says, to abide in us. Again, he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And what is that message? It's what he said in the opening verses of this letter. It's the message of the gospel concerning who Jesus is. John says again, remember, we heard him, we touched him, we beheld him, we're declaring to you this message. And now John is saying, let that good news, beloved, abide in your hearts. Let it find a home in you. To abide means we allow the word of God to dwell richly in our hearts. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And he says, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So beloved, we are to hold on to the word of God, especially the gospel. To confess the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to walk in light of the gospel. If you're a Christian, you don't know the gospel very well, or you don't understand who Jesus is or what he came to do, then you will be easily deceived when false Christs are presented to you. But if we have the gospel abiding in our hearts deeply, it helps us to keep our focus on who Jesus is. And the promise that God holds out for us in this struggle is eternal life. Verse 24, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he promised us, eternal life. What an encouragement as we seek to live faithfully for the Lord in these last days. We not only have God the Spirit with us now, but we have God's promise of eternal life. Even when it's hard, beloved, when we feel the opposition outside of us and within us, we remember that it's worth it to follow Jesus because God has promised to his children eternal life. Soon the battles of life will come to an end and we will be at home forever with the Lord. Soon the struggles that we are struggling with today Struggles against sin, Satan, battles with people and relationships and anxiety and worry and worldly pressures. One day, beloved, soon it's all going to be over and we will be at rest in the presence of our Savior who will lead us beside those eternal still waters. And so, beloved children of God, May we live with a sober awareness this week that we are living in the last days. But may we keep our eyes on Christ as we abide in his word and allow his word to dwell richly in us. And may we rely on God's spirit.
For he is the one who guides us and who comforts us and who teaches us and who promises us to bring us home to glory. Amen. Let's pray. Indeed, our Heavenly Father, we call upon you this evening once again, for you alone are our strength. You know, Lord, that in these last days we face so many struggles, that it's a hard road to heaven, that the narrow path, Lord, is sometimes difficult, sometimes it's enticing to maybe want to go on the broad path with all of the comforts, all of the luxuries, all of the self-indulgence. For you've called us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow Jesus. And Father, we're grateful that you have not left us alone in this struggle, that we even fight not in our own strength, but by your help. Thank you that you're the God who fights for us. Thank you, Lord, that also you are not overwhelmed like we are, that you're not a God who has too much on his plate, but you're the God who is steadfast for your people. You are a rock. And so we cry out to you and ask that you continue to help us in these last days to press on, even with joy and with gratitude in our hearts, knowing that the victory that we long for is already secured for us in Jesus Christ. And we share in it by faith. And so we thank you for your many provisions that you bless us with as a church and as individuals. And we pray that you would help us to rely upon you this week. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.